purpose because people would not follow his ways, particularly Israel. So he messed it up for us, and we've been dealing with it since. So we do have a 13th month occasionally, both on the Gregorian calendar and, well, they actually add days uh, to February, whereas we simply have an extra month in here. And it occurs naturally. We don't have to figure it or calculate it. It just happens uh, if you use the equinox properly in figuring the calendar. So anyway, this coming Monday evening is the uh, beginning of the new year, 1-1. And we'll have Bible study here at 7.30 Monday evening as a new moon study to usher in the new year. Please do not turn to Matthew 5 today. We'd, we'd, we've been doing that for quite a few weeks. I don't know how many. I hazard, wouldn't even hazard to guess, but we're done with Matthew 5. Let's go to chapter 6. We are told to examine ourselves before the Passover there by Paul in 1 Corinthians and He says, then take the Passover. Now, normally speaking, uh, they took the lamb and set it aside, according to Exodus 12, on the 10th of the first month, and they had time to examine it and be sure that it was without flaw and blemish and would be suitable for the Passover, whether it was a lamb or a goat. You could use either one. And... Perhaps the time that we have specifically for examining is those days prior to uh, ourselves that we are sacrificing to God uh, to be sure that we are in the right attitude to take the Passover. This year I began quite a bit earlier, uh, starting with the so-called Sermon on the Mount, which is an examination, really, of ourselves and of our attitudes and our approaches to the New Covenant and the things that Christ desired of us there in these three chapters. So, really, that's what this is. I've been staying away from prophecy and history and various other things, primarily to have us focus on what is important for us. The things are still happening out there in the world, day after day after day. I'm not paying as much attention to it as I was, because I think that I clearly see that those events that we've been looking for for many, many years are now on us, and we are in it. It's just a matter of how quickly it develops, but we're there now, and uh, day by day it gets worse, and we're not very far now from... The mark of the beast. We already have, as I've said, the mask of the beast, and that's being renewed and pushed. And now they're saying already uh, in New York that they may put a chip or uh, an identification in their forehead uh, so they don't have to fumble and try to find their vaccine pass or their, their mask is already on their face, but then they can just go through the line and read their forehead. So that's already being considered now in New York State, and it probably will happen there and get worse. 
as the Bible specifically says, in your hand or in your forehead. <coughs> the mask is a little low for a forehead, and I don't consider it the mark of the beast, but I certainly think it's the forerunner for it. It isn't very far removed, and this control thing that they've been after is not going to be let up. There will be other things that come along, and this vaccine may ultimately kill an awful lot of people. Uh, I think they've got it programmed from everything I've read to uh, mess with your DNA and your genetics uh, system, your immune system, and in a few months people may start dying like flies. It appears that they have done this. Don't know for sure, but we'll sure find out pretty soon uh, if this is the, the kill shot or if they have to administer another one. I don't know, but we're, we're there. We're in it. Uh, there's no backing up now. This, this thing is going to continue to go forward. So what do we need to be doing? We need to be getting as close to God as possible. He is the only answer to the problems that are now coming and are here on society. And if there's going to be any protection, it's going to be under his umbrella. It's going to be him protecting us. Otherwise, we're like everybody else out there in the world. So, what does he tell us to do? Draw as close to him as we possibly can. And that should be the center and the focus of our attention, is to be as close to God as we can be. Uh, you can prep physically. Uh, a lot of people out there in the world, apart from God, are physically prepping for what is ahead. But what they don't grasp, and even the conservative uh, broadcasters and so on do not see, is that this is the end of America. This is the end of the nation of Ephraim and whatever Israelites might be here. And the Gentiles who have come among us, it says, are going to go packing back home because it's better there than here. So the border problem will get solved. <laughs> They'll be running the other direction just as fast as they can to get away from here. This is the hot spot. This is the place that the whole world wants destroyed. And the beast system that is now arising, their first target is to get rid of America and Americans so that they can issue in their new world order and their new world government without us. So all these preppers that are out here are prepping to maybe hold on for two or three months or two or three years until this all blows over and we can rebuild the country. That's their mindset. They're totally wrong. They don't know what's happening. This nation is going down and under one-third to die of famine and pestilence, one-third to die by the sword, one-third to go into captivity, and the sword go after them. That's what's going to happen here. And there's no recovery from that, other than Christ setting up the millennium and beginning to work with Israel again. But as far as a nation or an empire, we're finished. It's done. It's over. So if you're thinking, well, we need to get six months or six years prep 
there so that when this blows over, forget it. That's not what the prophecies say. Now, we may need some preps for a certain amount of time, making the transition from the way things are until uh, Christ provides for us. I don't know how much of an interim time we'll go through like the, like the Israelites did in Egypt or Mitzrayim. And some of the plagues came on them, and then God made a separation. But we might have the same scenario, and we might need things for a, a little while. And he even says the Assyrian there in Isaiah between 8 and 11 is going to come in and try to do to us what they did in Egypt. But God will run them off. He says they'll, they'll try to bat you around for a bit, but he'll take care of it. So we're not going to be completely unscathed, put it that way. Uh, they're already in a way doing it, are they not? with wearing masks and vaccines, and now it's going to get more and more and more that way. So they're already trying to one degree or another, not the Assyrian particularly, but who is behind all this? It's those, who people, it's those nations who are allied against us, China and Russia and all their friends, or who are behind this, and the government in Washington is playing ball with them and going along with it, shaking their hand in a deal to sell out America, as Jeremiah 50 and 51 talk about. That's what's going on. So yeah, they are already, the Assyrian and his allies from behind the scenes, trying to enslave us and make masked men out of all of us, and worse, vaccinated people, and kill us, in so doing. So it's already here. They just haven't invaded and started shooting people yet much. So there's only one protection, and that is God. Now, I think we need to be spending more time focusing on Him than we do on physical preparation. Now, we ought to do some physical preparation, and I think we have, and still are doing some. But the spiritual preparation is by far and away the most important part, because if we're not close to God, He's not going to deliver us. And if we are, He says He will. So, it's just that simple. So, no, I haven't been spending a lot of time on all those things, and don't plan to any time in the very near future. But right here in Matthew 6 is where we are, 5, 6, and 7, today 6. And here he talks about our inner relationships with him and with mankind. Because the whole plan is about love. And everybody coming to have God's love throughout all eternity. So this training ground here is about us learning to love each other and to love him above all. But what do we tend to be? We tend to be self-centered, not God-centered, and not people-centered. We tend to be self-centered, taking care of ourselves more than helping and serving and giving to others. Sharing ourselves with them, in other words. It's harder to do. 
And he talks a lot about that in this chapter, so let's get into it and see what he tells us we ought to be doing. He tells us in the previous verse 48, to be therefore perfect, mature, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect and perfectly mature. Uh, So in chapter 6, he says, take heed. What does take heed mean? It's a warning. Be careful. Watch what you're doing. Take heed that you do not your alms, that is your good works, your service, things you do for others. Take heed that you don't do them before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. All the good things we might do, God says, if we do them to be seen of men, we'll not be rewarded for it. No reward for that. Now, the key here is selfishness, vanity, and ego. We should be serving and helping one another out of true concern and godly love for each other. And if it's true godly love, there's no room there for ego, for vanity, for bragging. That's ego and vanity. Of patting ourselves on the back for all the nice things we've done. Uh, making sure people recognize the things we've done. No, he says, don't do that. Take heed that you don't do it to be seen, implying, or heard of men. You're not out there doing good so that people will think, oh, what a wonderful Christian you are. Or for you to go tell them all the good things that you've been doing so that they can hear it. There's no place for us, or in us, for ego, vanity, and self. There's no room for it. But we like to be patted on the back. We like to be given a gold star. We like for people to see what we've done or how good we've been or how we've served. And sometimes we'll even say it. Well, I don't want any credit for this. And then we'll go out and get all the credit we can find. Uh, Because we're saying what we think ought to be heard and then doing just the opposite and trying to get some acclaim or recognition or thank yous or whatever. You don't have to ask for a thank you. You don't have to ask for an accolade or noticed for what you did. You don't need to. The only reason you want that is ego and vanity. Self. Self to be recognized. Self to be appreciated. So God says right off the bat here, don't do it to be acknowledged by people. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. All the good things you do, all the good works you might do for others, if they're done out of ego and vanity... There's no reward for ego and vanity. That's the bottom line of what he's saying here. Because that's the only reason we ask for acknowledgement is to stroke our ego. That's why we do it. 
because we are self-centered. And God is not self-centered. He is outgoing, outgiving, trying to help, trying to spread his salvation to us. Not sit up there and be so happy and full of ego about his wonderful position as the sovereign of the universe. He just doesn't think that way. Therefore, verse 2, when you do your alms, you are to do them. But when you do them, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. Now what is their reward? It is the accolades of men. And it is eternal death. That's the reward for what the Pharisees were doing. They weren't doing their good deeds for God. They weren't doing them for people. They were doing them for self-adulation and even sometimes wrote all the good things they'd done on the white ends of their garments so people could read and see What wonderful things they had done. Now, did those wonderful things help people? Well, very often they did. Sure, they were good things. But if they're done in vanity and ego and selfishness, then there's no reward for vanity, ego, and selfishness. None whatsoever. God hates vanity. He hates ego. He tells us under no circumstances to be proud. He didn't even say of Christ himself, I'm proud of you. He said, I am well pleased. Now, well pleased is fine, but proud? No, that's the way we talk here as humans. Here is this new baby, this father's God. He's so proud he's busting his buttons off, all swelled up with pride. No, we're not to be proud of our children. Did we somehow create the birth process from start to finish? No. It was here long before we were. All we did was something very simple that was fun, and we got kids. We had really not much to do with it. Just our little part in what God had created. So what's to be proud of? You were married and had sex. You're going to go around being proud of that? Well, then why be proud of the product, the child? No. You can be happy with the child. You can be pleased with the child part of the time. But you can't be proud. You can't be full of ego and self about, this is my kid and he looks like me. (laughs) Poor kid. No, there's no room for pride. Pride is something God absolutely hates. And when we do something, even though it's good, and we're proud of it, or happy with ourselves about it, and want to get thanks from men, that's the only thanks we'll get. We'll get no thanks from God. It just wipes it out, is what it does. Neutralizes it. 
And if we continue to operate with vanity and ego, he's not going to have vanity and ego in his kingdom. He's not going to have selfishness in his kingdom, putting ourselves first. That's idolatry, because we put God first, and when we put ourselves ahead of him in any way, breaking any of his rules, we have committed idolatry. I've said that now about a thousand times more or less, but it's still true, and we still suffer from idolatry. We really do. We have to put it aside. So when you do your good deeds, don't talk about it. Don't brag about it. Now, I know nobody blows a trumpet. I've never seen it in the modern end-time church and worldwide all the way back. I've never seen anybody actually blow a trumpet get everybody's attention, and then tell them what a wonderful thing they had done for Widow Jones. I've never seen it. But I've heard, I've heard them lift their voice like a trumpet and tell everybody all the wonderful things they've been doing. Even though they say, I don't want any, I don't want any uh, recognition. That's hypocrisy. When you say you don't want recognition and then you go find some, that's hypocrisy. And it's still vanity and ego. You haven't gotten graduated from that yet. We've got to graduate. So, don't brag about whatever you do. Just do it. And the reason they do it is that they may have glory of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. The glory of men, and that's all, because God will not recognize it. Why is it vanity? Well, selfishness is vanity. But if you did something for somebody, it's going to go away. You know what? They're going to die, and it'll be gone. And you're going to go die... And there'll be nothing left. Now, if you do something for somebody and keep it to yourself, and God puts that treasure in your bank account in heaven, then it'll still be there when you're resurrected, and God will reward you with it. But anything you did down here just to be seen of men or recognized by men goes away when you go away or they go away. There are a lot of people who have died here in the end time in the worldwide church of God. And you and I don't remember all the good things they did. Or at least we don't think about them very often. If you think back about somebody specifically, you might remember some good things they did. You'll come close to remembering somebody that bragged all the time. (laughs) That's who you'll come closer to remembering. So that's all the good it did, but there's no reward in heaven. Doesn't help your bank, heavenly bank account a bit. They have their reward right here. That's it. But when you do good deeds or good works, let not your left hand know what the right hand does. Now, you've got a right hand and a left hand. And those are 
generally what you do good things with. You can do good things with your mouth. You can do, but generally it's something you do for somebody uh, with your hands, even if the mind is the one that's telling you to do it. But he says, don't even let your own right and left hand know. Now that's keeping it pretty private, isn't it? I have known people who knew that somebody had a need, okay? And they would go out in the middle of the night and leave groceries on their front porch. Or back porch, I'm thinking in one particular instance. Dr. Hay used to do that. Now, that's a good thing that Dr. Hay did. But if he, if he saw a need, he took care of it in such a way that nobody knew where it came from. They just opened the door and there it was. Now, that's not letting them know, and it's not letting your right and your left hand know. You're helping for the sake of loving someone, not being seen by men doing what you're doing. That's the difference. God sees and God knows, and God rewards that. Because there's no ego and vanity there, unless you pat your own self on the back. And that's possible too. And that's why he brings it down to this point. Don't even let your own right and left hand know a good deed that you've done. Don't be proud of yourself, whether you say it to anybody else or not. Totally private and let God count it. Let him recognize it. Let him be the one who is there to reward you. Because whether you tell somebody and they say thank you and reward you and tell you what a good boy you've been, or you pat your own self on the back, it's still ego and vanity. What a wonderful thing I just did. No, don't give yourself accolades. Just quietly do. And the less it is seen of people, the better. The less it is seen to your own credit, the better. Not letting the right or the left know what you did. Keep it from yourself in that sense, as far as credit is concerned. That your alms may be in secret. Any good deeds we do should be done in secret, as much as is possible. Now, sometimes we help people or we do something for somebody, and what we're doing is, is or can be obvious to anybody who sees it. I mean, some, some things you simply can't hide. Uh, if their car needs worked on and you're working on their car, people can come by and see you working on the car. So some things in that sense can't be hid. But what he's saying here is our state of mind needs to be such <clears throat> that we try to keep it as private and as secret as possible. And if it's seen, okay. But don't draw attention ourselves. And don't be looking to draw attention. You know, sometimes we'll get offended. Well, I did such and such, and they didn't even say thank you. Not even a thank you. Have you ever had that happen? I think we all have. 
somebody do something for us and we forget to say thank you or whatever, and then they get offended. No, we're not supposed to give offense or take offense, either one. That should not be part of our mentality, is offense. So, do it in secret, and the Father, which sees in secret himself, shall personally reward you openly. Now, whether that's in this life or the next life, Openly is the way he will do it. So, would you rather have God openly rewarding you, maybe down the line, for whatever good things you did, or is the temporary adulation of men or self-adulation what's important? Now, sometimes we have issues with esteem, or issues thinking we could be worthwhile or doing something good. So when we do something good, maybe it does help us realize that we have some value, because everybody wants to have value, right? But who does the resurrecting? (laughs) We need to be focused on doing things that will cause God to have value in us, not men or ourselves. Just serve, just help. Self-esteem essentially is vanity and ego, is what self-esteem is. I esteem myself well. Now, people, some people feel bad about themselves. Some people feel really good about themselves, and there's everywhere in between. And what we've done with our society is go into Satanism, which is always make your kid feel good about himself. That's what the schools are about. That's what everything is. Oh, give that kid a participation medal. Give that kid a ribbon. Do something for him to help his self-esteem. You know what big self-esteem is? It's ego. That's what Satan has, is self-esteem. He esteems himself higher than God. Now, that's as big an ego as there is. But anything below that that is coupled with self-esteem is vanity and ego. Now, God doesn't tell us we need self-esteem, nor should we be telling our children how wonderful they are all the time to build up their ego and their self. They don't need that. They need to be told right from wrong. They need to be rewarded when they do right and punished when they do wrong so that they have a realistic view of doing right brings blessings. Doing wrong brings punishment. And Parents get right in the middle where they, oh, we want this kid to feel so good about himself so he can be a success in life. No, a dose of reality is what our kids need. Reality. This causes pain. This causes pleasure. And then they grow with that in mind. Now, sure we should thank them. Sure we should tell them when they're doing good. 
that helps them separate good from bad. Oh, they're happy with me when I do this. They're unhappy with me when I do that. But modern society has been taught that that kid is always good no matter what. Now, what is a human being? Is he good? No. A human being is deceitful and desperately wicked and selfish to the core. Who can know it? That's what a human being is by nature. And they have to be trained out of that, not patted on the head and said, well, it's okay, you'll be better tomorrow. I had a little, maybe she was 16, she was driving. Didn't look it, but probably was. She ran a stop sign and plowed right into the side of my wife's car, which she very rarely let me drive, but I was that day. T-boned me from the passenger side. Her mother came and said, oh, it's okay, honey, that's what insurance is for. You're such a good, sweet angel, and everything's taken care of. Now, she should have had some retribution. She should have been showed, you know, we have to pay for the insurance on this, and our rates are going up. And you were careless, and you were stupid for running that stop sign. Let's get a grip here and come to some reality. Get a job and pay your own insurance from now on. But we're so sweet and soft to our children because they're wonderful. They're ours, they must be. <laughs> Give us a break. No, they're like everybody else's kids. They're deceitful and desperately wicked and selfish, and they get spoiled. And we're the ones that spoil them. What do you do with the vegetables when you bring them home? Do you put them in the oven so they'll spoil fast? Or do you put them in the fridge to keep them from getting spoiled? Got to do the same thing with our kids. Don't want them spoiled. Spoiled isn't fun. But that's what our society around us and all the books and all the child rearing has given us. No. They need to learn reality. And that's what he's telling us here. The reality is there's only one that can resurrect. Everything else is vanity. Everything else is transitory. It all goes away. It doesn't last. So do something that will be forever. So therefore, no ego, no vanity, no self, no self-esteem. Just do good and let God reward you. And you'll feel better about your life if you're doing good things instead of evil things. And that's from childhood on up to old age. There's young fools and there's old fools. Some people never learn. But we should be learning. And he goes on in verse 5. And when you pray, so he's saying you're going to be doing good things, Keep them secret. Now, when you pray, you're going to be praying, in other words. There's things that you need to consider about prayer. 
You shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Truly I say to you, again, they have their reward. It's the accolades of people who see them praying. I think we've pretty well learned that we're not to be going out and praying in the streets. I haven't seen people in the church doing that. But it's an attitude. And there have been a lot of people over the years who maybe weren't asked to give an opening or a closing prayer. And they were just waiting for the day that they could give a prayer in services in public. No, that's not what it's about. It's to very humbly thank God in heaven for the service and for the opportunity to learn, for the opportunity to meditate and think on godly things. We need to open and close uh, services with prayer. We just need to be very careful that our ego isn't in the way. And, you know, we always had that stair-step thing. You wanted to be noticed by giving a prayer. Then you wanted to be noticed by doing deacon things and becoming a deacon or deaconess or whatever. And there was a certain little green envy when somebody else got ordained and you didn't. Because self was still in the way. Ego and vanity was still in the way. So, he's going on here in the same mode. When you pray, don't do it to be seen. But here's what you do, verse 6. When you pray, go into your closet and be sure and shut the door behind you. Pray to your Father in secret, and your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. Now, you can't completely hide good deeds. I mean, if you're doing something good for somebody, as I said, someone might see it, and that can't be helped because it's, I mean, if you're putting a roof on or fixing a car, somebody's going to see it. But you try to do things as quietly and without accolades as possible. But when you pray, find a private place to do it. And do it in private with the door shut so nobody knows you're praying or what you're praying about. It's just between you and God. That's all. He wants prayer to be between you and your Father and your Savior in heaven. And no one else is to know about it. Now your wife or your husband or your kids might see you go in the closet and shut the door, and they might know you're in there to pray, but they don't see it, they don't hear it. You're doing it as privately between you and God as you can. And when you come out, you don't tell people that you were in praying. You don't tell them what you prayed about. You don't say nothing basically, about your prayer life. Now, somebody tells you, pray for so-and-so, you know, okay, and then you go do it, but then you don't come out telling everybody, oh, I prayed for so-and-so. 
That's just self-righteousness and ego and vanity. Our prayer life should be private. I try not to, when I see somebody in the morning, well, I was in praying this morning. No, you're supposed to go do that privately. Now, it's okay if occasionally maybe somebody mentions a problem and you say, well, I'm, I'm praying about that. And you'd say, well, I am too. I mean, just in conversation, we might say something like that occasionally, but we, bet we need to be very careful even there. It's between God and us and nobody else. You're not doing a good deed for somebody else, at least a physical one. You might be praying for them, and that's a good thing to do, but you don't tell them about it. You can tell them, I'm concerned for you. You can tell them if they ask you, I'll be praying for you. But then when you do, just keep it quiet. When you pray, go in the closet, shut the door, and he who sees in secret, you're trying to keep a secret. That's the point. Keep that in mind. Am I keeping this secret? Is this just between me and God? You know, a lot of times people say, well, I can keep a secret, and I'll get 30 people to help me. <laughs> no, that's not a secret. That's public broadcast. You don't, if it's a real secret, you don't tell anybody your Father in Heaven. And he says, this is a secret thing. It's, it's just between us. It's private. So we should endeavor to keep it that way. And then when you pray, verse 7, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. <clears throat> Make long prayers, dramatic prayers, uh, repeating the same old things over and over. I suppose those who did it in the street probably kept bragging so others could hear about all the good deeds they had done. They made it a public thing about their good deeds. No, it's to be quiet and not to keep on repeating the same old things over and over. We equate this a lot of times to saying the rosary or something like the Catholics do, so many laps around the beads. I took 30 laps today around the beads. Well, what good did that do? Hail Mary, Mother of God, I don't know what all they say. Uh, but it's just filling time with something that sounds religious and has no value whatsoever. Now, if we're just praying to God, we can mention certain things regularly, and he'll, he'll name some of them here shortly, of things that we ought to have in our prayers and focus on in those prayers. So he says the vain repetition of the rosary or whatever, uh, just because you spent a half hour or an hour praying, there's no accolade for that. I'm, I know in Worldwide we did have some watch keepers who said you had to pray 30 minutes in the morning. You had to study your Bible for 30 minutes or an hour 
in the morning. And you were praying by the clock to be sure that you got your 30 minutes in. I have never found anywhere in the pages of this Bible anything that tells me I ought to pray a half hour in the morning. Have you? I've not seen anything there that tells me I ought to pray an hour. I've heard preachers tell me how much they think I need. And I used to do that. I remember in college I'd go into that prayer booth, boy, and check the time and be sure I got in my half hour. Well, what was the quality of it? Was it just filling in time and saying things? That doesn't do much good. Meaningful prayer means something. Now, sometimes I found you can pray and you don't feel like you're getting above the ceiling. You're just mouthing words and it's not going anywhere. And if you persist and you work at it, then the communication with God opens up and you feel now he's hearing something. I'm doing this in the right way and we're communicating. But you can pray an awful lot of prayers just to the ceiling and God may hear them, but they don't really mean anything. Just like you can talk to people and they're saying blah, 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 same old thing over and over and over. Every time you see them, same old thing over and over and over. And, and after a while, you just kind of tune out, you know, think about something else. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. But it doesn't mean anything. And then you can get in conversations where both people are involved. Both are interested in what's being said. You felt the difference between just blah, blah and and real interest on both sides. Well, that's the way it needs to get as often as possible with God, so there's interest from both sides, and you feel true communication, not just words. That's what you're working for, is communication. Now, sometimes I've prayed a prayer that was a minute or two long that did a whole lot more good than an hour's prayer that wasn't going anywhere. There was no communication, really. Quality is what we're after. Secret quality. Don't be like the heathen, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. There's nothing you can ask God that He didn't know ahead of time that you needed or wanted. He knows all those things. He reads your mind. He knows ahead of, before you ever even start the prayer, pretty much what you're going to be praying about. Because he knows your mind. He wants us to ask, yes. But he already knows all our wants, all our needs, all our desires. And he's balancing all that with our ego, with our vanity, with our selfishness with our idolatry, whether we're wanting something selfishly or our prayers are outward toward him and others, or whether they're mostly selfish. I want this. I need that. Help me with this. What's it about? Me, I, me, myself, and I, 
That kind of prayer doesn't go very far with God. He already knows what you need. How's he going to give you what you need or want? Well, if you're considering the benefit of others more than worrying about self, then that's the attitude he's looking for. And sometimes he will reward you openly with things you've prayed in secret for others. If our prayers are selfish, God isn't into selfishness. That's not what he's about. He's outgoing and giving and helping others, not just himself. So analyze your prayers. How much of it is selfish? How, how much of it is for me, myself, and I? So he says, here's the manner I want you to pray. Our Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, God is the God of the universe. And when we approach him, we shouldn't immediately begin asking for things that we want for ourselves. We should approach him as the sovereign, hallowed, holy, be your name, honor and praise and glory be to you, the creator of all things, you who made us and put us here, you who control everything in the universe. Build him up, not because he needs to be built up, because he is all those things. Who needs the lesson? We do. We have trouble recognizing He is the sovereign of all things. And we like to think of ourselves and our thoughts are about ourselves. And why do we get discouraged and depressed? Because we're thinking about ourselves. And there's not much there to be proud of. When your mind's on yourself, you tend to get inward and selfish and depressed and frustrated. Because you're not what you know you need to be, or what others think you ought to be, or what God thinks you ought to be. So, if we're to put God ahead of everything, and love Him above everything on earth, with our heart, mind, body, and soul, we're the ones that need to be building Him up in our mind, so we recognize how great He is. He knows how great He is. We're the ones that have trouble grasping it and believing it. So at the beginning of a prayer, you give honor and glory and praise to him for all the things he's done. You get your mind on him as the great creator of the universe, and you kind of forget about self because your mind is on God. Now you're in the right mood to pray. To the all-encompassing God of heaven and earth. Once you get that established, you can look to him for the things that come later on your list. But be sure that the first commandment is being kept when you pray. He's above everything, and he's above me, and above everything down here. You are having an audience 
with the greatest being in the universe. Wow. Now, once you impress that upon your mind, you're ready to go to the next thing. Your kingdom come. Okay, he's the great one and the only one that can bring peace, security, happiness, an end to the warfare and the fighting and the selfishness and the drugs and the alcohol and the sex and the self-entertainment that this world has. He's the only one that can end this selfishness of humanity and selfishness of Satan. He'll bind him and kill most people and then he'll create a peaceful kingdom. And then he'll resurrect those people that he killed and teach them how to live in peace. And they'll have a chance at salvation. So, acknowledge him for what he is. Then pray, your kingdom come. Now see, that's not selfish, is it? Well, you want his kingdom to be here for you, yes. But when you're saying thy kingdom come, you're talking about his kingship over the whole earth. So your mind is directed outward from self to the greatness of his kingdom. And how badly and desperately all of mankind needs it, including us. So the focus is toward him and his kingdom. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, his will is not being done on this earth, hardly at all, because he's left hands off for the most part. He's let Satan rule this earth the way Satan thinks. Now, he puts limits on him. Satan would have killed every one of us, starting with Adam and Eve, and never let us even get off the ground in that sense. <coughs> Had God allowed it. But God did not allow it. So he's not totally hands-off. He's hands-on to a certain point in limiting Satan and what he can do. When Christ comes, his will will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Now, God's will is not even completely being done in heaven to this point. Because he still allows Satan to go there as our accuser. Now, it is within his will to allow that for a limited time span. So in that sense, it's not completely against his will. It is his will to allow it. But then his will is going to turn and he'll say, I'm not going to allow that anymore. Get back down there and stay there. And I'll send... Christ the King, to bind you and put you away shortly. Without Satan and the demons there, it will be totally according to God's will, and it will be during the millennium. So we pray for thy kingdom to come and his will to be done. Now this takes a little while to go over some of these things in a prayer. But this is the basic format. Then give us this day our daily bread. Don't give me my daily bread. Give us ours. In other words, be thinking of more than just yourself. 
Everybody, all of us, need to eat. All of us need to be blessed. All of us need to be serving God. So we don't say, give me my whatever it is I think I need. No, give us our daily bread. The thinking is outward. Not just me, but us. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. He starts this prayer by giving him great glory and honor and praise, hallowed to his name, who is above all. Then when we do get into our human needs here on the earth, we don't just pray for self. We pray, give us our, because we love our brother as much as ourself. Do we tend naturally to pray that way, or does it immediately come down to me and what I need? No, it's us and what we need, our brothers and sisters. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Still thinking of our brothers and sisters, not just ourselves. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we should be praying for each other to be delivered from Satan and from self. So our prayer is still outward. We're getting way down here into this prayer. and hasn't mentioned me, myself, or I yet, has it? Not once. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Oh, I skipped some here. Let's go back up here. I didn't mean to get down that far. Give us our bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, he'll tell us just down here in a little bit, if we don't forgive others, we won't be forgiven. It's all still above the self level. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we're to pray for each other, not just ourselves. Now, this can be expanded, not just saying these words, because you could say this prayer real fast if you just read just what's here. It doesn't take up much time or space. But if you expand each one of these thoughts, it takes more time. Because you don't just say us, then you might can remember specific individuals and things that you know that they might need. And pray about them and for them. Ask God's guidance and direction in their lives. Uh, We can pray for others quite a bit. And we can address our own needs. But what are our needs? I want this, I want that, I want something else. Now what did God give Solomon credit for? He said... When Solomon prayed, he says, give me wisdom and understanding and help to rule this people. He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for personal gain. He didn't ask for uh, money, gold, silver, whatever. He asked for wisdom, understanding, guidance from God for the sake of others. Now, Solomon had an awful lot already. And God gave him much more. He says, because you didn't ask for these things, 
because you ask for wisdom and understanding and those spiritual qualities that are good for others, I'm going to give you these things anyway. So God rewarded him openly, did he not, because of the attitude that God saw in him that was not at that point selfish. Now, he got selfish later. When he got up to a thousand women, and they all had different gods, and he began to worship their gods, is when he got in trouble. Because he got away from that focus he had had earlier, and began to focus on self, and the things that his wives wanted him to focus on. Now, one wife and one husband might help each other keep the right focus, but you get that many, and you're, they'll all be pulling you different directions. And now what? Can you imagine having a thousand women telling you what to do? That's two or three too many. <laughs> you know? Then... Uh, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we start out with hallowing and praising God. Then we pray about these things in the middle. And then we give him praise and honor and glory at the end of the prayer. As a reminder of who he is and that all these things we have just prayed about, he is capable of answering. He is capable of fixing, of doing something about it. So... The prayer here is not selfish. The prayer is toward God. It is toward our fellow man and brothers and sisters, and we love as much as we do ourselves, and then praise and honor to glory, our glory to God. And there's been nothing about I in here yet. Now, that doesn't mean you can't pray that other people have blessings and that God help them that they have wisdom and his guidance and his word. And you pray about those things for yourself. And you spend very little time praying about physical things you think you need. There is room for that at times. And I think you'll see that reading a lot of the sample prayers that David prayed. He did pray about himself and his needs and his enemies and so on. So there is room for that. But what Christ is trying to do here in the New Covenant example of a prayer is help us see that our main focus needs to be on God and others, not just ourselves. You're going to, one way or another, address your needs, okay? Just as David did. But you need to concentrate on focusing on him and your brothers and sisters and others because that doesn't come natural. Me, myself, and I comes natural. So you focus your prayer a different way and you'll get your words in for yourself one way or another, won't you? <laughs> you know, but that isn't the focus. Amen, he says. So be it. And then he goes on to say, 
For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So I think he's referring back to the prayer here, saying that in your prayer, you need to be sure you're asking forgiveness for others and that you are yourself forgiving others for whatever they may have done to you. If you're praying for them, you don't have time to criticize them. You don't have time to be negative or down on them. You're praying forgiveness for them. And in so doing, you have forgiveness in your own heart and mind for them. If you do that, he'll forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now that puts some teeth in it. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he means business. Don't put yourself ahead of them. Equal, maybe, but not ahead of them, or yourself ahead of them. You put God ahead of all of us, and then you treat your neighbor as yourself. And that doesn't leave room for selfishness, vanity, ego, pride, and patting yourself on the back or having others pat you on the back. There's no room for that. He talks about those things before he gives you the sample prayer. Then as soon as he gives it to you, he says, now don't forget what I just said, and if you forgive others, I'll forgive you. If you don't, forget it. I won't forgive you. What happens if your sins are not forgiven? You go into the lake of fire because the penalty of sin is death. Is there anybody on this earth who has ever done anything to you, whatever it might have been, that you have not forgiven? Is there anybody you still hold a grudge against and have this resistance to them and will not forgive and move on? If there is, you need to take care of that before that sun sets today. You need to do it. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Now, we've all struggled with this. I've told before, I had a business partner that stole hundreds of thousands, actually about a million and a half dollars from me. I mean money that was in the bank, not just a promise. I struggled with that. I don't know how many different ways I thought of killing him and wondering how I could get away with it. I didn't really intend to kill him, but boy, my mind was active. Let's put it that way. And it took me a while. Now, I hope he's in the kingdom of God today. I hope he repents of all the things that he not only did to me, but he did to other people as well. And his wife, who was devoted to him, finally divorced him because of this kind of stuff. I couldn't continue to hold that because I've sinned in my life. And if I don't forgive him for sinning, breaking God's law and dealing with me, the sin was really against God, not me anyway. I suffered for it, but the sin was against God's law, not my law. So I have to forgive him, 
Otherwise, God doesn't forgive me my sins, and I go in the lake of fire. Now, what good does that do me? <laughs> Not a bit. So I just use that as one personal example. There are many others. But I've done things to people, or people have done things to me. that shouldn't have been done or said. I hope they're forgiving me, and I hope I'm forgiving them. There's just no room for grudges. God does not hold grudges. He doesn't do it. He doesn't believe in incarcerating people. You don't find anywhere in the Bible where God set up jails. He did set up cities of refuge where people could go so they might not be stoned to death until they got to be proven innocent. And if they went there and weren't proved innocent, they had to stay there. If they came out of there, they would be stoned for what they had done. So he didn't put them in jail. They went to a city of refuge on their own hook and stayed there, lest they have to suffer the penalty for their infraction. So God didn't put them in jail. He gave them a place that they could go and preserve their lives if that's what they wanted to do. No, he doesn't believe in incarceration in that sense. He either kills you or lets you live forever. One of the two. The only one that are ones that are in jail or will be in jail are Satan and his demons. But he has not said he would ever put humans in an everlasting jail or hail or however you want to say it. He doesn't think that way. But he'd already given Satan eternal life, and when Satan rebelled, he can't really kill him according to his laws because he'd already given him life. So he doesn't go down on his word or back on his word, but he made us where we can die. He didn't give us eternal life or immortality. He gave us physical life. And if we won't follow his ways, death is the result. Because he doesn't want people living forever in misery. He's a God of love. And sometimes it's better to put us down in love than to let us live forever in misery and hate. That's how much he loves us. Well, let's stop there then for today. <laughs>